Appreciate you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You know, Brother Sam uh, read that thing to you from a brief history of time this morning from that fellow Hawking. Uh, brought back nightmares for me. Um, I had to read that in the ninth or tenth grade. I had to read that whole book that guy wrote on, it's about black holes and all kind of stuff and the creation and I mean it's, it's unbelievable. It got me thinking, you know, there has been this movement in Christian circles to try to conform to science. And, you know, they've come up with this idea of theistic evolution that God just set the thing in order and then took his hands off of it. And it's, you know, the, the world contradicts itself. And I mean, even we as Christians, we contradict ourselves on a regular basis. Um, but the scholars tend to contradict themselves. They say that it, they believe in theistic evolution. And then on, and on the other side of it, they go, well, why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, your evolutionary stance is that God took his hands off of it. So if God's hands aren't involved, then bad things are going to happen to good people. But I say, I take it a step further and say they haven't read the scriptures because the Bible says in Romans 3, there is none good. And you and I, if you're here and you're saved tonight, the only good thing about any of us is Jesus Christ is on the inside of us. We are still this wicked, rotten, crazy flesh, and there is nothing good about us. And anything that happens to us, we got because we deserve it, and we need it to happen to us. You know, I read, um, I read the old preacher a long time ago, and he said, he said, you know, he, he says, God allows bad things to happen to save people to remind them that this isn't heaven yet. And he allows bad things to happen to lost people to remind them that there's something worse. And he allows good things to happen to lost people to remind them that, something, that there's something better. And he allows good things to happen to you and I to, to remind us that he's coming to get us. And, you know, we, we live in this, in this age where the church is giving up on the, on the doctrine of the rapture. Where, you know, the, the, we're, we're getting back to a place, if you, if you do any sort of research or run any sort of theological circles and read any of the stuff that people are putting out now, it's, it's there, we're going back to one general judgment and we're going back to one, one advent, one second coming, and there is no rapture. And they're having to get rid of the Bible to get to those places. And they're having to alter the Bible. And they're having to change the Bible to take away something that Paul said when the Lord gave it to him back in probably A.D. 40 or 50 about the doctrine of the rapture. The rapture was, was not presented until after Pentecost. Nobody knew what the rapture was. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says it was a mystery. He says, that, Behold, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. That the last trump, we shall all be caught up together with him. That thing happened, it's a mystery. And so what I want to do tonight, I want to give you some doctrinal things from why the rapture is not the second advent. And, and I want to hit that kind of quickly because I, I want to go somewhere else with, with what the importance of the rapture and some things the Lord, I think, showed me about why it's important for us to think about the rapture and why it's important for us to, to keep that thing in the, in the forethought of our mind on a daily basis. Um, because it, it always has an impact on us. So let me just give you these four or five things, maybe six things here, to show you the difference in the rapture and the second advent. Or this, and this, when I say second advent, we, that's synonymous with the second coming. That's synonymous with the resurrection of the dead. Um, they're two separate events. All right, the first thing is at the rapture, 
you have the rapture of the church, you have the, you have the judgment seat of Christ, and you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those events are contained in the rapture when the Lord comes back here. At the second advent, the Lord physically touches the ground. You have the start of the tribulation or end of the tribulation. You have the judgment of nations. You have the reestablishment of Israel. You have uh, the battle of Gog and Magog. You have the millennial reign of Christ. You have, and then you go off into the great white throne judgment. I didn't give that to you in order. But those are the events that happen at the, at the second advent of Jesus Christ. There are two different things. Um, the, the resurrection of the dead or the second advent, those things are taught all the way back in the book of Genesis. The book of Jude tells us that Enoch is preaching the second coming. Of Jesus, is preaching the second coming. Enoch is preaching that God's coming back, all the way back in Genesis. But the rapture, we don't know about it until after the day of Pentecost. It's not revealed. It's not shown. It's a mystery, just like the church was a mystery. And the problem that you run into, and, and um, the problem you run into when you're having, trying to have a conversation with somebody who does not rightly divide their Bible, is they don't rightly divide their Bible. And it's hard, I mean, when you go to somebody and show them the difference in the rapture and the second advent, like you have to teach a Bible class to them on why there's divisions in your Bible and why there are, there are different places. It's, it's the same thing I was having a conversation with somebody this morning about eternal security. You know, do you realize that, that as Baptists, we're one of the few people that still believe in eternal security? Most people think that, well, you get saved and then you have to work to stay saved. No, we have, we're eternally screwed whether we work or not. And, but, but people have left the Bible, and they've left Bible doctrine, and so they don't know what the Bible teaches. And so when you go to tell somebody about the rapture, they're like, what is that? Where, where is that in the Bible? They've got the church going through the tribulation. They've got the church in a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture. I remember, I remember coming up, I was raised in, a, in a, what I thought was Bible-believing churches when I was a, when I was a, a teen. Um, I was not in a Bible-believing church. I was in a, in a Southern Baptist church. And the youth pastor that was brought to our church that was going to change and revolutionize our youth group started teaching mid-tribulation rapture to the teens in teen class. Um, and, I mean, and I, and I got into arguments with my grandfather who had been a Baptist preacher and could tell me why it wasn't a mid-tribulation rapture, but he couldn't convince me because this guy had convinced me that it was a mid-tribulation rapture because he was my teacher and, well, what did my granddad know? I mean, he just, you know, he'd been in the ministry for about 40 years, but what did he know about Bible doctrine? Um, and, you know, and it, you're easily deceived when, when you have teachers and you have people with itching ears wanting to hear things, and so it's hard for us to sometimes have, have conversations with people who don't know the Bible like we know the Bible. Um, and, and we tend to get frustrated with them. We tend to get frustrated like, listen, you're, you're taking that out of context. You're, that's God talking to the Jew, not talking to the church. And they go, Jew, Gentile, Church of God, what's that? And you're like, and you have to go over there to Corinthians and show them the three types that are in the Bible and the three different audiences in the Bible. And you literally have to teach a class to somebody. But it should remind you and I of just how patient the Lord's been with us to teach us what he's taught us. And too often times, we just want to cut their head off and go, you're an idiot and, you, and you're a moron and you've, you've got your Bible all out of whack. And instead of going, you know what, it took me a while to get this too. Um, for me, the greatest lesson that I had to learn on that was when I met my wife. Um, my wife was an NIV carrying, you know, God-loving, saved person. 
And she could not understand this King James Bible thing at all. And I, she liked to broke up with me because I wouldn't stop berating her over the head for it. And finally, I'm like, somebody, some, finally somebody said to me, he goes, her just drop it and leave it alone and she'll come to it on her own. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. I can't marry her if she doesn't get this thing straightened out. I'm not going to have some wife bringing a, an NIV into Bible Believers Baptist Church. <laughs> and finally, wisdom prevailed and I let her alone. And you know what? One day we were riding around in the, in the truck and um, we had, you know, gone on a date or whatever. And we were riding around and she goes, you know, I think I'm ready for you to show me that stuff that you're so passionate about. And I'm like, why now? <laughs> like, I almost got mad. I'm like, why, why, like I, we've been having this discussion for a couple of months now. Why at this moment? Well, I, I mean, I've heard what the preacher's been saying in the church because she'd been coming here and she'd been sitting in the pew with an NIV Bible for two or three months of coming here. And she was still found. She's like, look, this is the Bible that God saved me out of. And she goes, you're asking me to give up the thing that God used to save my soul when I realized that I was lost. And I'm like, yeah, but God used something in spite of what it is to save you. And, but she couldn't see it because God had dealt with her in that place. And you know what? There are times in your life where God's dealt with you in a place, even though it may not have been the right place. But God still dealt with you there. I mean, I've been in a Catholic funeral and had God speak to me. Didn't mean I went back to the Catholic church on Sunday morning and had mass with the Catholics. Didn't mean I went and took the, the stuff, but God dealt with me there. Listen, God can deal with you anywhere as long as you're open to dealing with God. Just, but, but it doesn't mean you have to stay in that place. You know, I mean, God dealt with you one way and, and doesn't mean he's going to change. Doesn't mean he's always going to be in that same place. You know, one of the things that I think sometimes we, you know, we, we put a value. And I don't know this has nothing to do with the rapture. And I don't know where it's coming from except the Lord. But. But sometimes we put a value on the place God dealt with us instead of the fact that God dealt with us. It's, it's, you know, I mean, I can take you to the spot in the carpet where God called me to preach. It was beside my bed in the, in the apartment I was living in. And guess what? I could go back there right now, and there is nothing special about that place. A bajillion other people have walked in that apartment on that spot, and, there, and God's not coming back to that spot. God's going to deal with me where God wants me to be now. You and I sometimes just need to be patient with folks and go, you know what? Maybe give them a little bit of time. Maybe show them some of the grace that God showed us when it comes to things that God showed us. Listen, the rapture is going to happen whether they believe it or not. And the rapture is coming whether they believe it or not. But they can still, listen, as, as long as they're still breathing, breathing, they have hope. There's a hope that God can still, if they're still open to the book and open to what God's saying, there's still an opportunity for them to get to where God's brought you to. And, and just be patient with those folks and give them some time and allow them to come in. You know, I mean, that's, I love our church because, I, and if you are a judgmental jerk, please don't tell me you are. But I love our church because I've seen people go out and they're able to come back in even though they've gone out. And that's a blessing. That's what this place ought to be. It ought to be a place of, you know what, I, I fouled up, but I, there's a place over there that will still take me for who I am. Please don't let go of that spirit and let go of that attitude in your Christian lives. But the second thing is the local churches, and, or third thing, wherever we're at in this list, the local churches in the body of Christ are lukewarm at the end of the church age. At the end of the tribulation, there is no church. There is no body of Christ. Um, at the second advent, I think I already mentioned this one, Jesus Christ lands on the ground. At the rapture, he never touches the ground. 
The fifth thing is, at the rapture, there's not a change in Satan's position. Satan's still the prince of the power of the air, the rapture. When, when, the, when we go out, Satan, Satan still, rules this, still rules this world. In fact, he will physically rule this world until, and then, but at the, end of the, at, at the beginning of the second advent, when Jesus returns, he's bound for a thousand years, and then he's cast into the, into the lake of fire forever and ever. So Satan's position doesn't change. The sixth thing is, at the rapture, there's no judgment of the Jews, and there's no judgment of nations. So those are just six things on that you've lost a loved one, the thought of knowing that if they're saved, you're going to be re reunited with them. I mean, the idea that, it, that when the rapture happens, some of our loved ones are coming up out of the grave. And we're, I mean, listen, I know their body's coming down and they're going to reconnect with their body and they're coming up in a glorified body and all that stuff. But the, the reality is we're going to get to see them again. Just because they're not here now, they're coming back. And what a blessing that's going to be. That's a comfort. That's a practical thing in your life that the rapture, when you think about the rapture, it reminds you, you know what? I'm going to see grandma again. I'm going to see granddad again. I'm going to see my loved one. I'm going to see my kids. I'm going to see all of those people again at the rapture. I may not see them now, but they're not dead and they ain't staying dead. They're seated with heavenly places with Jesus Christ right now, and they're coming back, and we're going to get to go up together. It's a comfort to you. It's, it's a blessing to you there in that passage. Turn over to, to uh, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It says in Luke chapter 12, in verse, starting verse 42, he says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom when his Lord shall make him ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, findeth so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But if the servant saith in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint his portion with the, with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beat with many stripes. But, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes will be beaten with a few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of them will they ask the more. What I want to say there is that when you think about the rapture, it stimulates loyalty in your Christian life. It stimulates you to go, you know what, the Lord's coming. And he's left me some responsibilities. And there are some things that I need to be busy about. Brother Sam over there, he was, he, he was in Colossians 4 this morning with Onesimus. And right above that, um, he, there's a passage there, I think it's in verse 5, where Paul, Paul's talking to the church at Colossae and he says, redeeming the time. I think it's in Ephesians, he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. But when you think about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back and we don't know when he's coming back and how, I mean, listen, we, we live in a time that, that we don't really know how off the calendar is at the moment. It could be 2029 right now for all we know, and the Lord's coming back, like brother, I think Brother Sam said, in 2030 at the, at the Jubilee. But it, we don't know where that thing fits. We don't know where we're at in time, and literally the Lord could come back at any moment. You could die at any moment. And when you think about the fact that, the, that your next step from this life to the next is in front of Jesus Christ, when you keep that in the forethought of your mind, it makes you kind of want to get busy. 
It's like, hey, uh, it's time to kind of kick it in gear. It's time, you know, the master's coming and he calleth for me and I better have some things in order. You know, when, when, when uh, I remember, you know, this is, this is how most of us are as Christians. I remember when I was a kid and mom and dad, you know, I was probably a teenager and mom and dad would leave for, you know, go on a date night or something like that and leave for a few hours. My sisters and I would do whatever we wanted while they were gone, right? I mean, nobody's there watching. You know, we didn't have security cameras in the house. Uh, listen, let's not sit here and act like we were all angels when we were teenagers. We all did dumb stuff that you weren't supposed to do, and you, did, and you never got caught. And the Lord, between you and the Lord, you're the only one who knows it. It's under the blood now. So don't be shocked that Brother Woodard did stupid stuff when he was a teenager. But we would, do, we would make a mess. We would act the fool, whatever. And we knew mom and dad were going to be home at 9 o'clock. So at 8.45, we raced around the house, got the dishes done, got the laundry going in the, in the thing, and the house looked immaculate when mom and dad walked back through the door, right? That's the same thing most, most of you, that's how you live your Christian life. You're going, well, God's going to come in 2020, 2030 because that's what Brother Sam said. And so I'm going to live how I want to live. And in 2029 in November, I'm going to get the house in order so that when God comes back, he finds me okay. Because your thoughts not on the fact that he's coming back, your thoughts on doing whatever you want to do. But if you keep the fact that he could come at any moment in your mind, it will keep you from doing things that you have no business doing. It'll keep you from foolishness. And I don't just mean sinfulness. It'll just keep you from foolishness. It'll keep you from pursuing things that God doesn't want you to pursue. You know, sometimes, we, we, there's, sometimes the things we pursue in life are not sinful at all, but they're things that God doesn't desire for us to have. And we lose time and we lose, we lose valuable time. Do you realize the only thing you can really give to God is your time? You go, I give my money. No, well, your money is a, is a, uh, is a result of your time. You, it took your time to earn the money. And so you've, you take that and give that Lord. So your time, is, your time and your thanksgiving, you can give God thanks. But, the, but in, re, in, in the grand scheme of things, the greatest thing you can give the Lord is your time. And it's the one thing you and I have that we can get, offer back to him. That's why Paul says redeeming the time. We're, we're supposed to do something with it. And when you think about the judgment seat of Christ, when you think about the Lord's return, it should stimulate you to loyalty. It should stimulate you to action. Turn over to Titus 2. Titus 2. Titus 2 and verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. When you think about the Lord's coming, it'll stimulate a godly walk. It'll teach you to deny ungodliness. It'll teach you to deny worldly lusts. And then you'll live more soberly in your life. You'll, you will think about things. You, you will begin to look at people and see souls and not just see somebody else. When you go, when you're thinking about the second, when you're thinking about the rapture, the second coming, when you're thinking about the Lord's return, and you walk into the grocery store, you don't just see a bunch of goats out there walking around. You begin to see some lost people that are going to pay a penalty for rejecting Jesus Christ. And when you think about how good God's been to you, it stimulates you to do something about it. When you think about how good the Lord's been to you, you kind of want to tell somebody, man, God's been good to me. Listen, it's, 
when you have a service like we had this morning and like we have typically on Sundays, it's hard to go to work the next day and just go, okay, I'm ready to go to work today. No, there, you want to tell somebody, man, we, we saw God move yesterday. We saw the Lord. You know, and, and, the, and the problem for a, for a lot of folks at this church is, is you get so accustomed to seeing God come down and visit, you just take it for granted. And you're like, well, the Lord will be there on Sunday. I mean, I, he, yeah, but are you going to be ready to receive him when he's here? And so when you think about the second coming, it stimulates a godly walk. Look back over in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. There's two here in this passage. Philippians 4 verse 5. He says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. When you think about the rapture, you're more moderate. You're more temperate. You don't tend to have these giant swings. You know, it's... Life is like, is, a, like a, is like a big pendulum sometimes on a, on a grandfather clock. And too often times we're swinging from one side to the other instead of being little tiny adjustments in the middle. And the Lord's trying to slow us down and swing from side to side just in the middle and walk in the middle, not these giant moves from one way to the other and other side to the other. You know, too often times we as uh, Bible believers, we see the world doing one thing and we run 900 miles away from it and get the other side. And we're just as wrong from being away from it. Uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but we have this fear of the word Holy Ghost because that's what the charismatics have used and, you know, and be filled with the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost. It's like, oh, you know, don't talk about the Holy Ghost. We love the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit, but we won't talk about the Holy Ghost. Well, the Holy Ghost is who, who works on you as an individual. The Holy Spirit works on us corporately, and the Holy Ghost works on us as an individual. Why are you afraid of something that everybody else has perverted? Just because they perverted doesn't mean that he's still not a person of the Trinity. Still not a person that you need to, to that he still prays for you. I mean, he says over there that he make, that he make groanings and utterings for you and I. We're not, supposed to be a, we're not supposed to avoid him. And too often times we avoid things that other people take and run off the deep end with. We're like, oh, I don't want any part of that, you know. No, moderation. Let your moderation be known to all men, is what Paul says there in Philippians. He, look there, he says, uh, verse number 5, he says, Be careful for nothing. Verse 6, he says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through, through Christ Jesus. You know what you find when you start thinking about heaven, you start thinking about the, the rapture? It's an antidote for worry. Amen. You're like, what am I going through right now that the rapture couldn't fix? And what am I going through right now that if the rapture happened, wouldn't be made whole? Is what I'm dealing with really so big that it's going to stop the rapture from happening? No. When the Lord's ready to come get us, the Lord's going to come and get us no matter what you think you're in the middle of. I mean, you may be solving some giant massive problem that'll cure cancer or whatever, you know, disease or help, it, help the whole world get saved. And God's not going to stop what he's doing just because of whatever it is you think you're trying to overcome. That rapture will cure every problem you and I have. Sometimes I think we look for the rapture just so that it will cure all the problems that we have. Um, we're kind of selfish in that. Like, man, I wish the Lord would just come get me so I don't have to finish this mess. And it's like, hey, you know, sometimes the Lord wants you to fight through some things so that you can grow and, and push through some stuff. And we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, when you begin to think about the Lord coming back, it kind of eliminates some of the worries you have in life. You know, what, what's going to happen to my kids? If the rapture happens, I ain't got to worry about it. You know, I mean, I'm praying for the rapture that my daughters don't get enough to get married. You know, I, listen, there just are not good men in the world today. 
you know, there's some boys in this church that have a good shot at growing up if they stay in this church, but for the most part, the guys in the world are idiots. And, I mean, that's, I mean, you look, there's more single women in this church than there are single men. Because it's easier to find, for a guy to find a woman than it is for a woman to find a man. And there's still 50-50. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, I think it's 51% to 49% worldwide men to women. So women, we're still outnumber you, but you can't find a good one. And it's not your fault. It's the men have gone after their own lust, and they've gone after their own desires, and they've gone after the things of the world, and they forgot about God. And I don't just mean the worldly men. The saved men have done the same thing. They've, we're, they're building their kingdom here. They're, they're, you know, we're growing the kingdom. We're growing the kingdom. I can't tell you how many Christian men I hear talk about in the business world. Well, we're, we're furthering God's kingdom. No, you're not. God don't need your business to further his kingdom. Listen, we're, the Lord is building a building over here that nobody in this church will be able to say they gave a giant chunk to and paid the whole thing off. The Lord will have done something when we finish that church because right now there is not a, there is not a borrowed dime on that project over there. There's not a borrowed dime anywhere. And to my knowledge, there's nobody in this church that's a billionaire that can afford to give the money that's been given to help that church grow to help that church be built. When that thing gets done, God's going to get all the glory for it. God doesn't need our business to help pay for whatever he's doing. He gives us the opportunity to get in on what he's doing to pay, to help, to help, to help it grow, but he doesn't need our individual companies. He doesn't need our individual personal lives to help make whatever he's making. He just gives us the chance to get in on it. And when you think about that and realize how small you are and how insignificant you are to what he's going to do, do you think about this? When he comes back, there's probably somewhere, there's a couple different estimations I've seen, but there's probably somewhere around a half a billion people that have been saved throughout the last 2,000 years. You're one of 500 million. Amen. Name any of those one of 500 million that's going to lead that group besides the Apostle Paul. I mean, you can throw Timothy and Titus up there, I guess, as being, you know, they were... One and two after it was over with, after Paul was gone, Silas, Barnabas, somewhere in there. But once you get past the people in the book, start naming names. You know, you can throw out whoever you want to throw out, but I promise you there's going to be some other people that are ahead of them. And we're all just a, a individual in that whole thing. Whatever you're dealing with is a small problem in the eyes of the rapture. There, it is, it's just, listen, I, and I'm not trying to make light of, of your problem. Every one of us has problems. Every one of us has difficulties. And it's, it's like, you know, it, it, it's like the preacher says about puppy love. It's real to the puppy. Sure. Your problems are real to you. And, and, and you know what? As Brother Sam preached this morning, you got a God who can reconcile those problems. And you got a God that can give you the grace to get through those problems. But you've got to allow him to do that and stop dwelling on them yourself. You can't fix the problem. You don't have the answer. You need to take it to Jesus Christ and let him fix it. Look over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 12, uh, verse 12 there. He says, In the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your, establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When you begin to think about the second coming, you begin to think about the rapture and you getting out, 
it stimulates brotherly love. It helps you to go, you know what? Man, it's going to be good, and I'm going to be with them forever and ever. And it should also help you get over your grudge with, any, with somebody else. You're going to, and we'll see that in just a minute in James. But it should help you love each other more. Because you know that as bad as it gets for whoever it is you're thinking about, it's going to be over for them too. And it should encourage us to, to encourage one another to go, man, the Lord's coming. Man, the Lord's coming. Man, the Lord's coming. And when you begin to encourage other people about that, it helps you encourage yourself. Because you're telling them the Lord's coming and, it's, and you're having to hear yourself say the Lord's coming. And you're like, hey, man, the Lord's coming. Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's love one another. Let's get along. Paul says that we should grow in our love towards each other when we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, I already gave you 1 Thessalonians 4. Look over in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Just a couple more of these. A few more. <laughs> Not one more verse. We got more verses. Um, Behold what manner of love the Father... Uh, 1 John 3 verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love... The Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that we shall be like him when he shall appear. We know, we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, and for we shall see him as he is. Boy, won't that be good? To see him as he is. You know, I got to think about that. When he comes down and his feet don't touch the earth this time, when you look up there and see him, I imagine seeing these two bright lights in the middle of a shadow. And that's the light shining through the holes in his feet. That that'll be the first thing when you take your eyes up to look in, his, in the Savior, you'll see these bright lights coming through the holes in his feet when you see him. And then you'll see the light coming through his hands as, as he comes down here and says, come up hither and he calls you by name. Won't that be just awesome? I mean, there'll be this giant, I mean, the, the light behind him, he'll, he's brighter than the sun, and I get that, but it's like, man, you're going to see those, you're going to see the price he paid the moment he shows up. And man, it will, you'll want to fall on your faith and you, and face, and, but you won't be able to fall on your face because he's defying gravity and he's snatching you out of here, and you won't be confined to this world anymore, and you won't be stuck, and you won't be bound, and gravity won't have any, you know, what must goes up must come down won't apply to us anymore. We'll be able to go up and not have to worry about coming back down. What a blessing that's going to be, that, that, that you're going to get to see him as he is, and then in the moment, in the twinkle of an eye, he's going to change you and I into, what he, into, into an image of him, and we will never have to worry about what we look like ever again. You'll never need a mirror ever again. You'll never worry about if you've got a booger in your nose. You'll never worry about if your hair's out of, the pla out of place. You'll never worry about if you've got alfalfa syndrome. You'll, you will you'll literally be content just the way you look, and you'll stop questioning, well, what if I do this? What if I do this? Would I look better if I do that? Well, how about, what if I change my hair this way? No, every part of your image will be perfect. I will be able to eat whatever I want to eat, and I won't have to worry about what it's going to do to my figure. I figure if I said it to myself, it, you know, it wouldn't offend anybody. But the, but the reality is, you'll be perfect in that moment. In the twinkling of an eye, he's going to change you and I 
to, to His image. But look at verse 3. He says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So thinking about Him coming reminds you that you need to make an effort to purify yourself. That goes back to that steward over there who knows the master is coming and he wants to be ready when the master gets there. He wants to make sure that the, the baseboards are dusted in the house and the windows are clean and that the, that the house is as perfect as the house could ever be when the master comes to see the house. He starts throwing out the rotten things and making sure that there's fresh flowers in the house. Making sure that there's, a, that there's a clean smell. There's no more mildew in the corners. That all the skeletons in the closet have been buried under blood. You know, I mean, how... how do you really want to meet Jesus with unconfessed sin? I don't. I don't want to be the first thing when I see him go, Oh, goodness, what about that? What, oh, uh, because you know in the moment you see him, that junk's coming to your mind when you go, oh, I haven't fixed this. Oh, I should have done this. Oh, it's, it's like when somebody comes over to visit your house. And I mean, I don't know about y'all, but when, if, if my wife is going to have somebody at our house, like for three weeks before they come, like everything in the house has to be cleaned out. Everything has to be perfect. And they walk to the front door of the house and she's like, we missed the cobweb on the front porch. I cannot believe there was a cobweb on the front porch of the house. What I'm, did you see the, the gnat in the light up there? I mean, that's the... But, we, but when people come to see us, that's what, that's what we're thinking about and going, well, man, did they, oh, that we're not perfect, and they saw that we're not perfect. Well, how come you don't think that way about when Jesus is coming? How come when he comes, you're not going to worry about being pure? How come you're not going to worry about being perfect when he comes? That should be on your mind. He's, Brother Sam talked about being per perfect and being complete in him this morning. We have a responsibility to be complete in him before he ever comes to get us. We shouldn't need to get to the judgment seat of Christ and fix all the stuff that, that is messed up. He's giving us the opportunity now to get it right before we ever get there. That's what those rewards are. The judgment seat of Christ is the effort you and I have made to get it right before we ever get there. That's the point of the rewards is, hey, here's something for your effort in your Christian life. Here's something for your struggle and for your strife and your suffering and your persecution that is worth more than what you could ever do in any effort you put in the physical sense here in this life. And what amazes me is, is he's going to give us a reward after all that he's already done for us. I mean... You, we say it, it's been an old adage, but if, if all Jesus ever did for me was save me, it'd be too much. Yet we gripe and complain because he doesn't do this and he doesn't do that. And when's he, when's he going to give me this? When's he going to give me that? How, how come I'm still having to deal with so-and-so? You know, how come this person's still in my life? How come, you know, they get this and, I, and I'm stuck with this? How come they do better than I do? And, well, I thought you just said if all he ever did was save me, he's given me all I need. He's given me more than I deserve. That's what, we, that's what it is. If I, would Jesus saved me, he, did, he gave me more than I deserve. If he never gave me anything else the rest of my life, he's given me more than, my, more than I deserve. While that's true, you don't believe that because you go back to him time and time again and go, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. You know, it's, it's like when your kids are coming up, you know, I mean, my kids, we'd go to the grocery store, Daddy, I want ice cream, I want ice cream, I want ice cream. I'm like, look, you don't, you don't need ice cream. And so we, you know, all of a sudden we go to the grocery store, hey, Daddy, I need ice cream. 
That's how we pray to the Lord. Lord, I want, I want, I want. Well, you don't need that. Well, Lord, or no, you, we're not worried about your wants, we're worried about your needs. And you go, well, Lord, I need so-and-so. No, you don't. Listen, do you realize that when you get to heaven, you'll, you'll look back and, and the Lord will show you all the things he said no to, and you'll go, thank God he didn't give that to me. You may not know why he didn't give it to you now, but you'll look back when you get up there and go, thank God he kept me from that. Thank God he kept me from this. Thank God he kept me from, from all the foolishness of my life. But the Lord's giving you and I a chance to purify ourselves, to make ourselves pure, and to, and to make ourselves a chaste virgin to present ourselves to him. I get he's going to change us in the moment of twinkling of an eye. But it shouldn't have to be a full body makeover when he shows up. You know, it shouldn't be the Oprah Winfrey show and bring the ugliest dog on the planet in and give her a full makeover and, and present something else when he shows up. You know, maybe you need your ears lowered. Maybe you need a little haircut. Maybe you need your beard shaved. You know, maybe the Lord drops a little weight off of you. Whatever it is, but, but it shouldn't have to be this entire drastic change. What are you doing to purify yourself, to get yourself ready to present yourself to Him? He's coming back. No matter what, He's coming back, whether by death or rapture, He's coming to get you. What are you doing to be prepared when He shows up? What is it you're doing in your Christian life to go, you know what, Lord, I'm ready to see you. I'm ready to be there. Look over at, uh, look over at James chapter 5. James chapter 5, just two more. Well, three more. Look at verse number 9 first, James 5, 9. It says, Grudge not one another against, uh, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. When you think about the Lord coming back and how good he has been to you, it helps you to let go of a grudge against somebody else. It helps you to go, you know what, man, God sure has been good to me. You know, I, I uh, somebody said this to me a long time ago, um, and I mean, you've heard a preacher use it before, but don't show anybody any more grace than what God showed you. The reason you hold a grudge is because of your own foolish pride. The reason you won't let somebody else up off the mat is because you think you're better than them and you've lifted yourself up, Satan, and you, and you, want to, and you don't realize that you're no good, there's none good, there's none righteous, there's none understanding, there's, nothing, there's none that seeketh after God, and that it's only by God's grace and Jesus Christ inside of you that you do anything and accomplish anything worthwhile in your Christian life. Amen. That, is the, that is why you won't let somebody else up off the mat. But by the grace of God, there go any one of us tonight. It, it is but by God's grace that any of us are sitting here tonight. Well, I mean, I, I've been faithful. I've been here. No. The only reason why you're here and you're faithful is because God's given you the grace to get through it and to show up each and every night. God hasn't given you some disease. God hasn't given you some bitterness. God hasn't given you something inside of you that keeps you from being here. God's kept that thing from you and allowed you to be here. And if you're not careful, God will take the thing away from you. But look back up in verse 7 and 8. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of our Lord, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, when I first saw this, 
I don't know about you, but one of the things I learned early in my Christian life is don't pray for patience. Because every time I pray for patience, something, situation, thank you, Brother Mitch, arises that makes me not want to be patient anymore. You know, something needs immediate care, and I don't really have the patience to wait for it. And so when I was reading this, and I'm like, hey, if I want patience, I don't need to go through something bad. I can just look for Jesus' come. come That's what he just said. Yep. He just said, if you look for his coming, that you with patience wait for it like a husbandman who waits for the crop to come in. So you know what? When you are sowing the seed, when you're living your Christian life, when you're putting things in the ground, you can be patient to know that all, one day that fruit's going to come up. And boy, when that fruit comes out, that's going to be the best tasting fruit. That's going to be the best tasting vegetables. That's going to be the de best tasting beef. It's going to be awesome when that fruit produces itself. We, um, my son and I were, having a, were riding around yesterday, and uh, he got an early, I guess, I don't know, I want to call it Christmas present, um, because he paid for it. And we were riding around, and yesterday we had gone up to town to pick up some things at the hardware store, and as we're going to town, somebody had a go-kart on the side of the road. And he and I have been talking about for about a year about building a go-kart. And then he had talked to me about, you know, he's like, well, Dad, you know, you don't really have time, and I'm not sure about this, and we don't really know what we're doing, and which is true. I mean, I'm not at, listen, you want me to build your house, I can build your house. You want me to build you a motor? Call Brother Josh, call a mechanic, call, you know, the Mannings, call somebody else about a motor. Don't ask me about a motor. I don't, I can change the oil and put gas and change the tire, but much, and do some windshield wiper fluid um, and change the windshield wipers. But much beyond that, I'm not mechanically inclined towards a motor. And so we pass by and we see this thing and he's like, and I, and I, well, I saw it and he didn't, and I said, hey, bud, you see that go-kart? And he goes, no, I didn't see it. Well, we came back and, and, and we stopped in and talked to the man, um, and Manning starts negotiating with him. Looks at the price, and he's like, well, you know, Dad, if we do so-and-so, and you do this, and you do this, and, you know, we, we, can, we can get this go-kart. And I'm like, okay, okay. I said, so you really want the go-kart? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I really want the go-kart. And so we bought the go-kart yesterday, loaded it up in the back of the truck, and we're headed home. And he goes, you know, Dad, I'm so thankful for all the times I didn't buy the little stuff because I was able to have the money to buy the go-kart when I wanted the big thing. And... I got to thinking about that thing in our Christian lives. So oftentimes we want to buy the worldly pleasure and the worldly treasure instead of saving up for the big thing. Instead of being patient for the crop to come in and going, you know what? I could dump a whole bunch of nitrogen on that thing and make that fruit produce now. Or I can let God's ground grow and produce and put the nutrients it needs to it and let God produce the fruit. Too often times in our Christian life, we want to become something before God's ready for us to become something. We want a place or a position or some sort of prestige when it comes to the, our relationship with Jesus Christ and some sort of notoriety when it comes to those kind of things instead of letting God bring us along, letting God put us in the place He wants us to be. You know, it, this, this idea in the Christian life that only the, only the big wigs are ever going to be anything in heaven is just not true. You folks have every opportunity to earn everything the preacher and other men who are great men have earned because you have an ability to be whatever God wants you to be. God wants you to be exactly who God wants you to be, not somebody else. 
when, when I remember being in, in school, and Dr. Ruckman, if, you, if I heard him say it once, I feel like I heard him say it a hundred times. When you leave here, don't be me. He said, when you leave here, don't be me. Do not imitate me. Don't do what I do. He said, you get in that book, and that book will, God will use to make you who God wants you to be. Because you'll be able to minister to people if you become who God wants you to be more than you'll be able to minister if you become whoever you think you ought to be. When you think about the second coming and when you think about the rapture of the church, it gives you the patience to go, you know what, God? I'm not exactly what I think I ought to be right now, but you're still working on me. And Philippians 1.6 says that he hath begun a good work in me and he'll perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And so he's still working on me. I'm not exactly what I ought to be, but, but he's still working on me. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we know shall we, we shall be like him. We don't know what we can become in this life for Jesus Christ at this point in time, but we know he's still working on us. And we know that if we allow him to continue to work on us, that we can be better than anything we could ever become on our own. Listen, we still need godly lawyers. We still need godly doctors. We still need godly plumbers. We still need godly maintenance people. We still need godly mechanics. There is nothing second rate about you being whatever God wants you to be. You know, I, I heard this said years ago, but it says if God called you to be a ditch digger, you'd have to step down to be president. Anything below what God's called, anything other than what God's called you to do is second class. And if you with patience just continue to plow the road, you know, one of the most infuriating things to me about farming is the time it takes for the crop to come in. I mean, you plant a seed and you watch that thing come up in your life. And Manning and I planted some broccoli uh, that um, somebody gave to us and we were watching the thing grow. He was out watering it every day. We were fertilizing it. We were putting miracle grow on it. I mean, we watched that. Bro we, well, it was cool to get to see this broccoli coming up and see it doing what it's supposed to do. And then we made a mistake and went on vacation and the neighbor's goats came over and ate all of it. But that's like the Christian life. Sometimes we're working on a crop and we go on vacation and in in we, we take a vacation in our Christian life and guess what? The goats of the world come in and eat the crop. Because we haven't been guarding what God's given us to guard. And when you find something that's precious to you, you know what you do? You build a fence around it and you go, I'm not going to let anybody in on that. You build a, you build a fence on relationships in your life and you go, you know what? I'm not going to let anybody between me and my wife. I'm not going to let anybody between me and my kids. Well, it ought to be that way in your walk with Jesus Christ. Build a fence around it and don't let anybody get into it. Get, build a fence around it and go, you know what? That thing's going to produce a crop one day. Right now, it looks like this string bean and just looks like this little stick in the ground. But before you know it, that thing's going to be an oak tree and it's going to be producing acorns and there's going to be seeds everywhere. But it takes time. Do you realize that when you plant an oak tree in the ground, it's seven years before it produces the first acorn? Seven years. Nobody in America was willing to wait seven years for anything. But God's not in a hurry. Every, every, everything I look at in the Christian life, it's always like I'm three steps ahead of where I think the Lord ought to be right now. Instead of going, hey, Lord, he says, be still and know that I'm God. He doesn't say run a marathon. He doesn't, he, doesn't run, he doesn't say run a sprint and I'll show you who I am. He says, be still, sit down, shut your mouth and listen to me. L l discover who I am. Take some time to get to know me. Listen, you don't learn your Bible by listening to Alexander Scorby read through it one time. It, it takes time. It takes years. 
Dr. Ruckman, I think, when he passed away, had read his Bible like 300 plus times. Do you realize he didn't read it 300 times in a year? It took him 62 years to get through his Bible 300 times. And that guy read it 10,000 words a minute when he was a younger man. I don't, unless you're a speed reader and I don't know in here, none of us read at 10,000 words a minute. Don't set that as your mark for what you're going to accomplish. You will be discouraged right away. You know what? I'm about a 150 word a minute person. I'm a very slow reader. I don't get through stuff in a hurry at all. So guess what? My goal is not 300. My goal is something different. Your goal, should be, your goal should be at whatever pace God wants you to be. Don't get in a hurry to learn it all overnight. You, you can't learn it all overnight, and you will never get to the bottom of it. That, that's the beauty of the Bible is you never get to the bottom of it. If you could get to the bottom of it, it would mean that you're better than God. And you're not better than Him. I'm looking forward to what Brother Sam talked about this morning, them atoms escaping and us blowing out of here. The last thing is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We kind of already hit on this, but to me, you can't, you, when you talk about the rapture, you've got to hit this. Second Timothy chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul. I have fought, verse number 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them, that also, all, the, all them also that love is appearing. When you look for Jesus Christ and you long to see his face, there's a crown for that. You don't need a doctorate to look for your Savior. All you need to do is talk to him on a daily basis and long to see him. He's coming, and it's not going to be very long from now. And when he comes, you'll not have any more opportunity to look for him. All you have right now is what you have right now. And once he comes, it's over with. The, the time for crying is now, not when we get there. Because it'll be all over but for the crying when you get there. And you go, I wish I'd have done more. Well, why not do what you can do now? And you won't have to say that when you get there. The reason you'll cry there is because you'll not have done what you could have done here. And you'll know you didn't do what you could have done here. You'll know that you chose yourself over him when you get there more, more than what you want to. But you have an opportunity to earn a crown do you realize that the, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords will give you a crown for just looking for his appearing? Listen, Wyatt back there is saved. How old are you, Wyatt? Nine? Eight. He can earn a crown for looking for Jesus Christ because he's saved. There's no age limit on getting that crown. There's no stipulation in this passage other than looking for the appearing of your Savior. That thing applies across the board to anybody. From an 8-year-old to an 800-year-old, anybody can get that crown for looking for his appearing. You don't have to be something special and be some big thing. God didn't make this thing rocket science where we can't understand it. He made it simple and he made it practical and we can carry it out in our everyday lives. It's just we get busy and we choose not to carry it out because, well, I'll get to God later. 
Listen, when we get to heaven, there won't be any later. It will be the present all the time. There won't be another opportunity. Right now is the only opportunity you have to look for his appearing. Because once he appears, you'll have already seen him. It's too late in that moment. So, so learn to love his appearing. Learn to love that there, you know, that it amazes me how practical our Savior is. He's not made the Christian life where you can't understand it and you can't know what God wants from you. This Bible is written in, a, in the language of a fifth grader. The, when you do all the science and all that stuff, it's, it's written so that a fifth grader could read the Bible and understand it. Every one of you as adults is beyond the fifth grade at this point in time in your life. The reason why you don't know any more than what you know is because you've chosen not to know any more than what you've known. You're content where you are in your Christian life and you're not really ready for him to come because you still have life goals and accomplishments and things that you feel like you need to do. And well, you know, I mean, when I get here, I'll make time for it. No, you won't because something else will always get in the way. You can't, you can't ever think, well, when I get this accomplished, it'll be easier to serve Jesus. No, it's, it will never be easy because the world, the flesh, and the devil will never want you to get there. And they'll do everything they can to distract you all along the way. You have to take time and go, you know what? The Lord's coming back. I better get busy. The Lord's coming back. I better stay working on whatever it is he wants me to work on. You have to, you have to make the effort yourself and do something about it in your Christian life. But the Lord will be pleased if you're looking for him when he shows up. You know, it's, it's, it, that, that, that looking for his appearing goes beyond just, hey, I'm ready for the rapture. No, it's you living like he could come at any moment. It's, when you're looking for his appearance, it all goes all the way back to the beginning. You're a faithful steward because you, may, you don't know when the master's coming, but the house is always ready for the master to come no matter when the master comes. Is your house ready tonight for the master to come? Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed.